Section 13 of The Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 13. Among the Diggers in 1853. Part 3. One day, in passing Philip's school, I peeped in at the flap of the tent. He had already acquired the awe-inspiring look of the schoolmaster. He was teaching a class of little boys, whose wandering eyes were soon fixed on my face, and then Philip saw me. He smiled and blushed and came outside. He said he was getting along capitally, and did not want to try digging any more. He had obtained a small treatise entitled the twelve virtues of a good master, and he was studying it daily in order to qualify himself for his new calling. He had undertaken to demonstrate one of Euclid's propositions every night by way of exercising his reasoning faculties. He was also making new acquaintances amongst men who were not diggers, doctors, storekeepers, and the useful blacksmiths who pointed out picks with steel. He had also two or three friends at the government camp, and I felt inclined to look upon him as a traitor to the diggers' cause. But although he had been a member of the party of young islanders, he was the most innocent traitor and the poorest conspirator I ever heard of. He could keep nothing from me. If he had been a member of some secret society, he would have burst up the secret, or the secret would have burst him. He had some friends among the diggers. The big gum tree in front of the church tent soon became a kind of trysting place on Sundays, at which men could meet with old acquaintances and shipmates, and convicts could find old pals. Amongst the crowd one Sunday were five men belonging to a party of six from Nyalong. The sixth man was at home guarding the tent. Four of the six were Irish Catholics, and they came regularly to Mass every Sunday. The other two were Englishmen, both convicts of no particular religion, but they had married Catholic immigrants, and sometimes went to church, but more out of pastime than piety. One of these men, known as John Barton, he had another name in the Indents, stood under the gum tree, but not praying. I don't think he ever thought of praying, except the need of it was extreme. He was of medium height, had a bored face, snub nose, stood erect like a soldier, and was strongly built. His small, ferrety eyes were glancing quickly among the faces round him, till they were arrested by another pair of eyes at a short distance. The owner of the second pair of eyes nudged two other men standing by, and then three pairs of eyes were fixed on Barton. He was not a coward, but something in the expression of the three men cowed him completely. He turned his head and lowered it, and began to push his way among the crowd to hide himself. After Mass, Philip found him in his tent, and suspecting that he was a thief, put his hand on a medium-sized cold revolver, which he had exchanged for his dueling pistols, and said, "'Well, my friend, and what are you doing here?' "'For God's sake, speak low,' whispered Barton. "'I came in here to hide. "'There are three men outside who want to kill me.' Three men who want to kill you, eh? "'Do you expect me to believe that anyone among the crowd there "'would murder you in broad daylight? "'My impression is, my friend, that you are a sneaking thief, "'and that you come here to look for gold. 
I'll send a man to the police to come and fetch you, and if you stir a step I'll shoot you. For the sake, man, keep quiet. I am not a burglar, not now at any rate. I'll tell you the truth. I was a government flagellator, a flogger, you know, on the Sydney side, and I flogged those three men. Couldn't help it, it was my business to do it. I know they are looking for me, and they will follow me and take the first chance to murder me. They are the most desperate characters. One of them was insubordinate, when he was assigned servant to a squatter, and the squatter, who was on horseback, gave him a cut with his stock-whip. Then the man jumped at his master, pulled him off the horse, dragged him to the wood-heap, held his head on the block, seized the axe, and was just going to chop his master's head off, when another man stopped him. That is what I had to flog him for, and then he was sent back to Sydney. So you can think what a man like that would do. When my time was up, I went as a trooper to the Nyalong district under Captain Foster, the commissioner, and after a while I settled down and married an immigrant woman from Tipperary, a Catholic. That's the way I happened to be here at Mass with my mates who are Catholics, but I'll never do it again. It's as much as my life is worth. I dare say there are lots of men about Bendigo whom I flogged when I was in the business, and every single man jack of them would kill me if he got a chance. And so, for goodness' sake, let me stay here till dark. I suppose you are an honest man, you look like it anyway, and you would not want to see me murdered now, would you? Barton was, in fact, as great a liar and rogue as you would meet with anywhere, but in his extreme traces he would tell the truth, and the present case was an extreme one. Philip was merciful. He allowed Barton to remain in his tent all day, and gave him his dinner. When darkness came, he escorted him to the tent of the men from Nyalong, and was introduced to them by his new friend. Their names were Gleeson, Point, and Lyons, and two brothers, McCarthy. One of these men was brother-in-law to Barton, and had been a fellow trooper with him under Captain Foster. Barton had entered into family relations as an honest man, he could give himself any character he chose till he was found out. He was too frightened to stay another night on Bendigo, and he began at once to bundle up his swag. Gleeson and Poyton accompanied him for some distance beyond the pillar of white quartz on Specimen Hill, and then he left the track and struck into the bush. Fear winged his feet, he arrived safely at Nylong, and never went to another rush. The other five men then stayed on Bendigo for several weeks longer, and when they returned home, their gold was sufficient for a dividend of seven hundred pounds for each man. Four of them bought farms, one kept a store, and Barton rented some land. Philip met them again, when he was promoted to the school at Nyalong, and they were his firm friends as long as he lived there. I went to various rushes to improve my circumstances. Once I was nearly shot. A bullet whizzed past my head and lodged in the trunk of a stringy bark a little further on. That was the only time in my life I was under fire, and I got from under it as quickly as possible. Once I went to a rush of Maoris near Job's Gully, and Scott came along with his portfolio, a small pick, pan and shovel. He did not dig any, but got the ugliest Māori he could find to sit on a pile of dirt while he took his portrait and sketched the tattoos. That spoilt the rush. Every man, black and white, crowded round Scott while he was at work with his pencil, 
and then every single savage shook hands with him, and made signs to have his tattoos taken, they were so proud of their ugliness. They were all naked to the waist. Near the ship's head gully, Jack Moore and I found the cap of a quartz reef with visible gold in it. We broke up some of it, but could not make it pay, having no quartz-crushing machinery. Golden Gully was already nearly worked out, but I got a little gold in it which was flaky, and sticking on the edge in the pipe-clay bottom. I found some gold also in Sheep's Head, and then we heard of a rush on the Goulburn River. Next day we offered our spare mining plant for sale on the roadside opposite Specimen Hill, placing the tubs, cradles, picks and spades all in a row. Bez was the auctioneer. He called out aloud, and soon gathered a crowd, which he fascinated by his eloquence. The bidding was spirited, and every article was sold, even Bez's own two-man pick, which would break the heart of a Samson to wield it. When we left Bendigo, Bez, Burney, Dan, Scott and Moses were of the party, and a one-horse cart carried our baggage. When we came to a swamp, we carried the baggage over it on our backs, and then helped the horse to draw the empty cart along. Our party increased in number along the way, especially after we met with a dray carrying kegs of rum. Before reaching the new rush, afterwards known as Waranga, we prospected some country about twenty miles from the Goulburn River. Here Scott left us. Before starting he called me aside, and told me he was going to the Melbourne Hospital to undergo an operation. He had a tumour on one leg above the knee, for which he had been treated in Dublin, and had been advised to come to Australia in the hope that a change of climate and occupation might be of benefit. But he had already walked once from Bendigo to Melbourne, and now he was obliged to go again. He did not like to start without letting someone know his reason for leaving us. I felt full of pity for Scott, for I felt he was going to his death alone in the bush, and I asked if he felt sure he could find his way. He showed me his pocket compass and a map, and said he could make a straight course for Melbourne. He had always lived and worked alone, but whenever we moved he accompanied us, not wishing to be quite lost among strangers. He arrived at the hospital, but he never came out of it alive. Dan gave me his money to take care of while he and Bez were living on the rum from the dray, and I gave out as little cash as possible in order to promote peace and sobriety. One night Dan set fire to my tent in order to rouse his banker. Then I dragged Bez outside the tent and extinguished the fire. There was bloodshed afterwards from Dan's nose, and his account was closed. After a while, some policemen in plain clothes came along and examined the drain. They found fourteen kegs of rum in it, which they seized, together with four horses and the dray. I worked for seven months in various parts of the Ovens district, till I had acquired the value in gold of my vanished twenty-dollar pieces. That was all my luck. During this time some of us paid the two-pound licence fee for three months. We were not hunted by the military. Four or five troopers and officials rode slowly around the diggings, and the cry of Joey was never raised, while a single unarmed constable on foot went amongst the claims to inspect licences. He stayed with us a while, talking about digging matters. He said the police were not allowed to carry carbines now, because a digger had been accidentally shot, 
He was a very civil fellow, and his price, if I remember rightly, was half a crown. Yet the digger-hunting was continued at Ballarat, and it ended in the massacre of December the 3rd, 1854. At that time I was at Colac, and while Dr. Ignatius was absent, I had charge of his household, which consisted of one old convict known as Specs, who acted in the capacity of generally useless, received orders most respectfully, but forgot them as much as possible. He was a man of education, who had gone astray in London, and had fallen on evil days in Queensland and Sydney. While alone in the kitchen, he consoled himself with curses. I could hear his voice from the other side of the slabs. He cursed me, he cursed the doctor, he cursed the horses, the cat, the dog, and the whole world and everything in it. It was impossible to feel anything but pity for the man, for his life was ruined, and he had ruined it himself. I had also under my care a vegetable garden, a paddock of cape barley, two horses, some guinea-fowls, and a potato-patch. One night the potatoes had been bandicooted. To all the early settlers in the bush the bandicoot is well known. It is a marsupial quadruped which lives on bulbs, and ravages potato-patches. It is about eighteen inches in length, from the origin of its tail to the point of its nose. It has the habits of a pickpocket, it inserts its delicate forepaws under the stalks of the potato and pulls out the tubers. That morning I had endeavoured to dig some potatoes. The stalks were there, but the potatoes were gone. I stopped to think and examined the ground. I soon discovered traces of the bandicoot, but they had taken the shape of a small human foot. We had no small human feet about our premises, but at the other side of the fence there was a bark hut full of them. I turned towards the hut suspiciously, and saw the bandicoot sitting on a top-rail, watching me and dangling her feet to and fro. She wore tousled red hair, a short print frock, and a look of defiance. I went nearer to inspect her bandicoot feet. Then she openly defied me, and said, "'You need not look so fierce, mister. I have as much right to sit on this rail as you have.' "'Lilius,' I said, "'you won't sit there long.' "'You bandicooted my potatoes last night, "'and you left the marks of your dirty feet in the ground. "'The police are coming to measure your feet, "'and then they will take you to the lock-up.' "'I gazed across the barley paddock for the police, "'and Lilius looked as well. "'There was a strange man approaching rapidly, "'and the bandicoot's courage collapsed. "'She slid from the fence, took the flight, "'and disappeared among the tussocks near the creek.' The stranger did not go to the garden gate, but stood looking over the fence. He said, Is Dr. Ignatius at home? No, he's somewhere about Fiery Creek, and I don't think he'll return till Saturday. The stranger hung down his head and was silent. He was a young man of small frame, well dressed for those days, but he had no luggage. He looked so miserable that I pitied him. He was like a hunted animal. I said, Are you a friend of Dr. Ignatius? "'Yes, he knows me well. My name is Carr. I have come from Ballarat.' "'I knew various men had left Ballarat. "'One had arrived in Geelong on December the 4th, "'and had consulted Dr. Walsh about a bullet between his knuckles. "'Another was hiding at a house at Chilwell, Peter Layla. "'He had lost one arm, and the government were offering £400 for him, "'so he took outdoor exercise only by night, disguised in an Inverness cape.' 
"'There was a chance for me to hear exciting news "'from the lips of a warrior fresh from the field of the battle, "'so I said, "'If you would like to stay here till the doctor returns, "'you will be welcome.' "'He was my guest for four days. "'He said that he went out with the military "'on the morning of December the 3rd, "'and was the first surgeon who entered the Eureka Stockade "'after the fight was over. "'He found twelve men dead, "'and twelve more mortally wounded.' This was about all the information he vouchsafed to give me. I was anxious for the particulars. I wanted to know what arms that he carried to the fray, whether he touched up his sword on the grindstone before sallying forth, how many men or women he had called upon to stand in the name of Her Gracious Majesty Queen Victoria, how many skulls he had cloven, how many diggers he had slewed, and how many peaceful prisoners he had brought back to the government camp. On all these points he was silent, and during his stay with me he spoke as little as possible, neither reading, writing, or walking about. But there was something to be learned from the papers. He had been a witness at the inquest on Scobie, killed by Bent and two others, and simply on his evidence Bentley was discharged, but afterwards re-arrested and condemned to three years' imprisonment. Dr. Carr was regarded as a colluding associate with Bentley and Dews. The magistrate and the official condemnation of Dews confirmed the popular denunciation of them. At a dinner given to Mr. Tarleton, the American consul, Dr. Otway, the chairman, said, While I and my fellow colonists are thoroughly loyal to our sovereign lady, the Queen, we do not and will not respect her men-servants, her maid-servants, her oxen, or her asses. A commission was coming to Ballarat to report on wrongdoings there, and they were looking for witnesses. On Friday, December the 8th, the camp surgeon and Dr. Carr had had a narrow escape from being shot. While the former gentleman was entering the hospital, he was fired at by one of the sentries. The ball passed close to the shoulder of Dr. Carr, who was reading inside, went through the lid of the open medicine chest, and some splinters struck him on the side. There were in the hospital at that time seven diggers seriously wounded, and six soldiers, including the drummer boy. Troubles were coming in crowds, and the bullet, the splinters, and the commission put the little doctor to flight. He left the seven diggers, the five soldiers, and the drummer boy in the hospital, and made straight for Colac. Fear dogged his footsteps wherever he went, and the mere sight of him had sent the impudent thief Lilius to hide behind the tussocks. I always hate a man who won't talk to me and tell me things, and the doctor was so silent and unsociable that by way of revenge I left him to the care and curses of old specs. After four days he departed, and he appeared again at Ballarat on January the 15th, giving evidence at an inquest on one hardy, killed by a gunshot wound. In the meantime, a total change had taken place among the occupants of the government camp. Commissioner Reed had retired, Dr. Williams, the coroner, and the district surgeons had received notice to quit in twenty-four hours, and they left behind them twenty-four patients in and around the camp hospital. Dr. Carr left the colony, and the next report about him was from Manchester, where he made a wild and incoherent speech to the crowd at the exchange. His last public appearance was in a police court on a charge of lunacy. He was taken away by his friends, and what became of him afterwards is not recorded. 
Doctors, where there is a dearth of patients, sometimes take to war, and thus succeed in creating a practice. Occasionally they meet with disaster, of which we can easily call to mind instances, both ancient and modern. End of section 13